0: Hello, I'm David Tooley. I'm the director of Chronicles of Riddick, and here with me in London is Alexa Davalos. Hello. And uh, from halfway across the
1: world is Carl Urban. Good morning. What uh, what part of New Zealand are you in? I'm in the Auckland at the moment. All right.
0: It's morning there. It's night here, and uh, we're here to discuss, you know, the filming of and uh, the tribulations of the problems of the. The pain Crocs and challenges the, of Rudy The
2: the, the, the joys of. As and well. The joys of.
0: On occasion, the joys of.
2: Come.
0: On. <laughs> uh, this is a uh, sequence that uh, was done for us by a combination of violin and a little bit of double negative in London, two of our major houses. It shows the icon, this 2,000 foot tall statue that the Necromongers ram into uh, a planet they're about to conquer or have conquered, uh, sort of showing their mastery of the planet and the civilization that they've recently conquered. Behind the mask, the man behind the mask, Colin Fjord. And standing next they to him, army, equally masked, that's Carl on
2: the, the right stars there. That's Judy Dench's the voice. Thomas we'll talk Larned, about
0: her in a moment. A uh, how we seduced her to come join <laughs> us in this movie.
2: And if they cannot convert you, they will kill you.
0: How do you feel Beding about working that helmet? The Lord
1: I was uh, quite keen to try and get out of the helmet as much as possible. i just finished a film where I spent 90% of the time in a helmet.
0: Talking about Lord of the Rings now?
1: Lord of the Rings, yeah, and I was was very uh, happy that you were open to that. I figured the one one way that I could uh, get out of that helmet was to get a uh, really radical haircut, and uh, then I I figured that you'd be interested to show that off as much as possible. So it seemed to (laughs) work.
0: Clever, but that um, that step scene where you see a Lord Marshall and you see Vaco and you see the purifier lined up, that was the about the last day of shooting, a big green screen environment, and I kind of knew that uh, it didn't really matter who was who was in that costume, and I offered Carl the ability to get out of town early because I could have put a devil in there for him, and uh, to his credit, he stuck it out, and he wanted to be the guy standing there next to his Lord Marshall. Yeah. So, um, what you're seeing now is the planet UV sequence, UV for ultraviolet lights, uh, a world where Riddick has been hanging out for the last uh, three or four years and just sort of removed himself from society because he doesn't trust himself around humanity anymore. And it is Nick the Nick Shinlin. And the Nick Shinlin of it all. <laughs> Nick uh, is uh, a great actor that I've worked with before and below, and uh, so
1: happy to have him in the movie. because uh, He's, he's great... awesome, absolutely awesome in this film. He's a great presence, isn't he? Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love his voice. That sounds like he's you know, taken half a gallon of whiskey before <laughs> each day of work. We've got great voices in the movie. You know, If
0: nothing else, everyone you know who everybody is as soon as they open their mouth. Yeah, sure. There's Nick. <laughs> So, this is, uh, this is all part of a, a reshoot that we did, because the first time we tackled Planet UV, we were short on time, and for budgetary reasons, we had sort of whacked it down into a very economical scene. And when we put it together in the, in the editing room, I showed it to the studio when I showed the, uh, the first cut to the studio, and I said, look, uh, I like it all, but except for this one sequence, it just isn't good enough. It's not, not spectacular seeing. enough for the first action sequence of the movie, we have to do something really special, because we just had three guys stumbling around in a snowstorm looking for Riddick as sort of a foot chase, or sort of a a slow speed foot pursuit in the snow. Three meters clearance port side, one and a half meters starboard. We got a choke point coming up. The one that we have in the movie now is very energetic and bold and starts just with a lot of adrenaline. And the one we had was, just wasn't involving enough and it was just a, a shadow of, of what this is. So Universal saw that very quickly and they're good like that. Scott Stuber and uh, Donald Langley and Stacy were very good about understanding what the needs of the film were and supporting us. So we uh, did all of this as a uh, one glorious reshoot. Went back and got it in like three days' time.
1: Did you ever contemplate having the guys on the wing wearing, like, you know, red jumpsuits, like in Star Trek? (laughs) You just know they're going to be collateral damage.
0: Oh, yeah, that's the guys. Name them Jenkins, you mean?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know they're not going to live long (laughs) out there on the wing.
0: Yeah, they're tough guys. They're tough.
1: It's a wicked opening sequence.
0: Yeah, and it's. You know, it's, it's hard to convey convincing alien worlds. And with that fingerprint terrain in the opening, I think it's a it's a really cool way to go because it's kind of like Earth but kind of not like Earth at the same time.
3: You made 3 mistakes.
0: <laughs> great. And this is a great reintroduction for Riddick here, just to find yeah, yeah. him in the back of the ship. It's it's spooky. We originally I storyboarded this scene where he vaults a board and he stands there, and he looks very, you know, a very cool action bit where he vaulted a board, but just on the day between me and Vin, we, we just sort of agreed that it would be spookier and cooler if he just appeared. Because that's kind of what Riddick is about anyway. He just has the ability to be there when he needs to.
3: One mil. One point five. What slam pays one point five for a convict? Private party. Hey, 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 hey! Guy, guy! Easy! Anonymous! That's what the sheet said! What planet?! Helion Prime. Whoa, where you going? Last question. and you better get this one
0: right, Murr. Nice moment, because this now has real character and it has a real Riddick character introduction for love it. I love that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's just brutal. I love that. Mine? 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 Yeah, right.
0: yeah.
1: I love those spaceships.
3: Knew they'd come for me. Took them five years, but I knew. You don't expect these mercs to have any honor.
0: Any code. This ship in particular, this, uh, this C 19 Flattery didn't undercutter, <laughs> was designed by Tim Flattery, oh. one of our concept designers. guy whose neck I see. Originally, it was conceived as a burrowing ship. Could burrow under sand, could burrow under snow. Uh, it lost that part of its identity in, in the reshoots. Can only end bad when you let someone get too
3: close. <laughs> bad for them. So now it's back to all the brightness and everything
0: I hate wonder if she'll be there. So this is a new scene, uh, new to this DVD, part of the extended version. Uh, this is the Planet U V sequence, the Kira and the Kennels sequence.
2: First day of shooting.
0: <laughs> first day of shooting for the whole production. Yeah. And our first day with uh, Alexa and the other actors are Dougie and uh, Vitali here. How was it working in a box for your first uh, first acting bit?
2: Oh, well, it was amazing actually to be able to really feel what Kira goes through and what what she experiences in this world that she lives in.
0: Didn't the production of the uh, set designers throw in? Like, oh yeah, cow bones in there. And
2: cow bones and mud. And <laughs> <laughs> didn't
0: they do some like artificial hellhound shit too? Oh my
2: god, I don't on know. On the how, walls? Yeah, I'm not sure how. Um, if it was artificial. Artificial. Ah. It all was, but a uh, powerful stench in there, definitely.
0: We were actually playing sounds, these hellhound sounds, on the day for you too.
2: Yes, yes, thank, thank you.
0: Yeah, we, we built speakers into the walls and so we could play them for her and, you know, make the environment more real.
2: This was a painful day. This was a lot of slamming up against the back of that kennel. <laughs> Lots of Riddick wounds opening day.
0: I remember looking at your back afterwards and seeing the scrapes and you were drowning blood on your back. Mm-hmm. throwing up, throwing yourself up against the wall. Mm-hmm. Remember how tame the first few scenes were?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It was like we weren't getting involved enough, and then y- your energies start flowing, you start kicking back, and you start fighting the guards even through the bars.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it definitely grew and grew.
0: We wound up in a very good place. So that scene wasn't initially in the movie, uh, only because we thought um, it was we were introducing too many characters too soon. This scene which you're seeing now, which is the appearance of Shirah played by Kristen Lehman, is also not in the theatrical version of the movie. That was part of this. Let's just get to Riddick, let's get him on Planet Helium Prime quick, and let's let him kick ass quick. That was, you know, the prevailing thinking at the time. Now we have more characters, I think we have a richer experience here. And this is, uh, Shira. Now Kristen Lehman has three scenes in the movie, in this DVD version of it. She's not in the theatrical cut at all. And it's a very difficult thing for a director to go to an actor and say, Guess what? Uh, we took you out really completely in a big picture, and you know what is uh, should be a big break for Kristen. But uh, unfortunately, I had to do that, and it's uh, it's no fun job. But the one consolation you do have as director is that you can go to her and say, um, "I'll get you back <laughs> somehow, some way. I'll get you back in the DVD." And here we are.
1: It's quite gutting as an actor to to slave and work on something for so long, and then. You know, whether it's just one scene even that's, that doesn't make it in and, uh, you know, really, you really sort of care, and you put a lot of time, effort and energy in it, and it sort of does t- hurt when, it, when it's not in. But mm. at least, I, I guess in this modern age of DVD, there's you know, some consolation in the fact that it will see the light of day. Yeah.
0: Some of the scenes that you and I both liked didn't make it into the theatrical cut as well. And mm. uh, we're going to be seeing them today. It's a very cool thing, it's a very liberating thing for directors to know that you've got that to back you up for the theatrical cut. So now we have uh, Mr. Keith David, who plays uh, Imam in this story for us, one of the few survivors from Pitch Black. It was really cool to see Keith after four years again, and you know, in a different continent, just like old family, Pitch Black family.
2: Hmm.
0: My assistant actually shows up here, and Camille flies by right around here. I think. There she is. Yeah, that's Camille. All of these, you should know that's the uh, the sets uh, that we had were um, everything that was shot in Riddick was shot on a on a soundstage in Vancouver. You know, just huge soundstages. The old Sears. What was it called downstairs. Mammoth? Mammoth, they call it now, but it's actually an old Sears warehouse building. And um, as many vistas as we have in the movie, you know, on this planet, on crematoria, on other, it was all shot on the stage, and whenever you see vistas, it's an artificial extension. So this is the, uh, the reteaming of uh, Riddick and Imam. Not a happy reintroduction for either one of them. Riddick thinks the Imam has rolled over on him, which, in fact, he has done to bring him to this planet. He's the one guy who knows where Riddick may be hiding out a holy man searching for Numeca.
3: your wife she's in the shower I told one man where I might go I show trust to one man did I make no simple answer. Whatever was said was meant to give us a chance. A fighting chance. Were it not for the threat of invasion, I never would have betrayed you. give you my word, Riddick.
2: Riddick?
0: This is Alexis.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Not to be confused with Alexa.
2: That's okay, I like that. I or I like Alexander, the confusion.
0: who shows up later in the movie. Alexis, she was like five or six years old. Right?
2: I think she was a tiny bit older.
0: Seven, Max.
2: Really?
0: Her mother played by Kim Hawthorne.
2: Alexis was a doll.
0: Look at those eyes, beautiful eyes, beautiful face. And yeah. she's she's one of the best loopers I've ever met. The little girl just really hit it dead on the nose every time. Wow! Just nailed it. That's impressive. It's like in and out twenty minutes. Wow! <laughs>
1: Next. Not like Alexa, my gosh. So <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs>
0: That's
2: it. I'm leaving. Thank you.
0: So she was great. I mean, uh, kids is always, you know, it's hard short hours and all that kind of stuff, but she was a trooper. Really good really good. As was her mother, Kim Hawthorne.
2: Mm. Yeah, I love them.
0: Here are the three clerics. These are the three, our version of the three wise men coming to uh sort of the clerics of uh, New Mecca, New, New Mecca being the uh, Islamic district of this world helium prime.
3: The cold planets are gone.
0: This it monologue, this same window same. monologue by it's Keith. You know, most, most of the movie is looped. You, most people prime don't know yeah, that, that you go in and goal. a movie like this and you'll yeah. loop 75% of your dialogue, 80% of your dialogue,
4: mm-hmm. just to
0: get it as clean as you can and to spread it around the speakers yeah. like you want it because once you have it looped, you have full control Never over that. it. So we looped this whole speech by Keith and um, he was trying to match performance at first, and then right at the end of the day, before we walked out the door, I asked him to do it at half that volume, as intimate as yeah, you could, almost like as it. if you were doing it to a lover. And it just it took on this great quality, that It's, it's great you-must-listen-to-it quality. Keith has such a great voice. Anyway, he does all these, you know, BMW commercials. He did the voice of BMW. Amazing voice. UPMs. Didn't they
1: give him a BMW for doing that too?
0: I think. I think so. I think so. And I think. I mean, he- obviously, well,
1: they're getting paid, but I think they gave him the car. I think he grabbed on those little ones. He can barely fit. Yeah. Right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Another great voice in the movie.
0: You know, I mean, amazing voices. Like a Malik.
3: The one you want is now here.
0: All these sets are uh, um, designed for us by Holger, and built. Built by uh, him and uh, the great art team up there in Canada, headed by uh, Kevin Nishio, our art director.
2: Astonishing sets, oh my god.
0: Yeah, and this is an upstairs-downstairs set. It was actually a real house. We just built a mom's house for real, uh, with some wild walls, of course, but you could just flow inside, outside. We didn't break it up into rooms. Inside, outside, upstairs, downstairs. It was all real for the actors.
3: She means you no harm.
1: Introducing Judy, women Dench, women women. Judy Dench, Dame mm. Judy Dench. Elemental. So when I to speak. an Elemental. How do we get her in the film, David? You know,
0: she heard that, uh... Does I think we cast you first.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know where I'm going. <laughs> Sorry. And she heard that I was in it and said, I gotta be in that film! That's it. That's it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, cool.
0: She was actually the first one, uh, the second one after Vin, uh, to be cast in the movie. And it was Vin's idea. He had always thought of her as one of our greatest actors, she, he's right. Absolutely, and oh my god. I always wanted to surround him with really good actors so that he would rise to the occasion. And um, so clearly his idea, and then we sort of tag-teamed her. Uh, you know, he would send her flowers, you know, <laughs> and I would go over to London and see her shows and you know, visit her backstage and start talking to her. And we really, you were saying something, Carl?
1: yeah as I was gonna say I, th- I think it's actually a, a you know a really smart move to have someone like Judy Dench in this role ...as a character who imparts a lot of information about what is happening in this universe and with you know with these cultures and if it comes from Judy Dench you're going to believe it from such a credible source true yeah from such a credible source she
2: brings such weight to this film just a, an entirely different energy and presence that's invaluable.
0: What clinched the deal was when I took a picture of the character, an artist's rendition, over to her and showed it to her. And she was very diaphanous and was sweeping. And um, she says, I love that look. And only when she loved the look and and she says, and could you make me a little taller? Because she always wanted to be just a few inches taller. So I said, will try to make that happen. Because she's largely a visual effect in the movie. She was also a trooper too. We had to, on the very, very first day of filming, we had to put blue reference dots all over her face. There was probably uh nine or 10 blue dots on her face and you know make people really want to do it and they they worried that what she would think of it and, but uh she was fine she was just a gamer throughout
2: yeah
3: you're not afraid of the dark are you
0: This is the first fight sequence in, uh, for Riddick in the movie, really, and we shot it very abstractly. E.J. Forrester, my second unit director, uh, did a lot of this. I did some of it, he did most of it. Uh, and there's some, we, we want to shoot it very impressionistically. As I wasn't even sure I wanted to film it at, at the beginning. I thought maybe we'd just see the start of it and then see the aftermath of it. But E.J. went in there and got us a lot of good footage and I just loved how abstractly it cut, so we included it in the film.
3: Mentioned her. She. Uh, she went looking for you. People died. She went to prison.
0: So we're talking about the Kira character, obviously again, formerly Jack, and tapping into um, you know the crux of their relationship. How she may have expected him to stick around.
2: Yeah, this is integral to her character. This piece.
0: She thought of you as her older brother.
3: She worshipped you. You were supposed to watch her. She never
0: forgave you. So we're setting up that there were expectations on, on Kira's part, Jack Kira's part, that Riddick was gonna, you know, be with her, that they were gonna be a team together. Right. She was gonna be side by side with him, we're gonna conquer the universe. And then uh
2: those hopes were were shattered quite quickly.
0: We figured he just like one night just vanished, you know, just he wasn't there the next morning. Mm-hmm. So like any true anti-hero, he's turning his back on it all. just want to be left alone.
2: Furious,
3: defiant to the end.
0: And this starts the Siege of New Mecca for us. Siege of Helion, actually.
2: I love that piece.
0: That's dark. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: This is the um, earlier, Keith has said, uh, the Imam character has said, a comet always precedes them. Well, now we go into space and we show that the comet is really not a comet at all, but it's splitting up into this, into 10 or 12 of these vast icons, which are all gonna puncture this world at different spots and hit different continents. And each one has an armada of warships trailing behind it. Great shot, that was done by Hammerhead, Jamie Dixon's group. A lot of the sequence was done by Hammerhead, actually. That's a cool shot.
4: Wicked.
0: <laughs> Wicked good. <laughs> Wicked. Wicked.
1: <laughs> or as Ben would say, bananas. It's bananas. It's bananas. <sighs> it's bananas.
0: That's the Icon landing off screen. Whoa. That's just massive. You know, I actually shot a, a shot that uh, followed that where Widdick gets blown off the rooftops and gets blown about a half mile across the city. And we filmed it. <laughs> and it was a great stunt that somebody did there. I think Chad did for us. But you know what? You just couldn't figure out how he survived it. And we couldn't figure out how he survived it. So we had to cut it from the movie. So here's a real surreal sequence now, where it's really, ridic- like, trying to get his bearings after being hit by that blast. And uh, seeing the icon again landed for the first time. Another great shot.
1: Playing with his conscience, yeah? Yeah, it's...
0: You know, he may have thought that uh, he could turn his back on it, but when he sees this overwhelming power and we sees what he is up against and what a mom and his family and the child will be up against, we sort of have to read into it that this is uh, the moment where he chooses to, you know, stick around at least for them.
2: It's a great sequence, though, this
1: whole piece. just epic.
0: These are the Helion Fighters, I think designed for us by Jim Martin, one of our concept designers. They were uh, designed to look like a scimitar, like almost an Islamic blade with their wings. And the uh, the Necro Fighters, those heavy open cockpit designs done for us by Matt Codd. Sort of almost like a hammer, sort of a, a beautiful Baroque hammer uh, was the concept we were going for.
1: Were any of these models or are they all computed? All these computer-generated,
0: even though I've got some yeah. very cool models in my office, <laughs> because you do the, you do a 3D rapid prototype first of all this stuff, and it yields right. great little models that you can look at and turn. You really need to hold it in your hand and feel it and look at it from all angles. Even though the computer can do that, it's still very tactile and productive to knock them off in 3D. Plus, they make good uh, souvenirs. <laughs> <laughs> So this is uh, the Y Street. Everything you see here uh, was actually built on set for us by Holger and uh, Kevin Ishioka. is the first ground collision between the Necromonger's horde, this is a really small group, actually. Small group, like 12 men strong, just uh, going into the midst of the helium resistance here. And we see Riddick return, of course. combination for the Necromongers, they have these um, futuristic gravity-based weapons, we suspected, and they combine it with some medieval battle axes, which is sort of, for them, this their whole style, we have this sort of baroque, this necro-baroque style, which harks you know, both to the future and to the past, and we liked it because this is a crusade that they're perpetrating on the universe, and you can look to the past to predict the future sometimes as well, and uh, I like the medieval feel to them as well, because it did hark to the crusades of old. And they look cool, <laughs> especially Vaco stuff. Do you remember when we had a big conversation about whether it should be Vaco or Vaco?
1: Yeah, there was some some debate about that. Because I'd written... what were you keen on? Were you keen on?
0: Well, look, I I wrote it with two A's because I thought it was going to be Vaco, and then uh, you came in and <laughs> I think you said, you know, no, it's Vaco. <laughs> I think you said it was. You know, that sounds a little bit too much like vacant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go with Vaca. So well, who cares? Even though you know, you and Tandy were coming fresh to it, and you both thought it ought to be Vaco. But at the studio level, we had been talking about it for six months as Vaco, Vaco, Vaco. And so when they first Vaco. They, when they first see it in dailies, you know, they were taken aback. <laughs>
2: the magnitude is insane.
0: Yeah, and that's just you know when you sh- obviously we shot you know the left side building on left to building on right is real green screen behind that and uh, that depth, the depth in that that kind of shot comes very late in the day.
1: I was most impressed with the attention to detail on the on the sets. i mean, coming from Lord of the Rings. I felt that I was kind of spoiled, but then it was a real surprise to step onto the set of Riddick and see that uh, you know the quality and the detail was, uh, you know, just as much as evidence as anything I uh, worked on Lord of the Rings.
0: Case in point, this little back alley set here. I mean, it just could have been a throwaway set, but look at all the texture that that Holger and Kevin put into it. So here we have the first appearance of the lensers, the lensing necros, to be sort of electronic bloodhounds for the necros, thought to be maybe guys who were so wounded in battle that uh, they lost part of their faces or part of their senses, and the necros step up and say, well, we have just the job for you, my man, you know? You know we will rebuild you.
2: Terrifying, they were terrifying. Yeah,
0: they were pretty effective. When you
2: Even on them. set, I couldn't be within 10 feet of them.
0: And these guys, they were sort of performance artists for performance arts inside those suits for the lensers now. Mm. And uh, they couldn't see. Once you turned on their lenser light, they were blind. Yeah. And they were just stumbling, they had these- And it was a
2: magnifying <laughs> lens. <laughs> <laughs> so they were not only blind, but nauseous. So whatever they saw was like
0: way out of, you know, <gasps> distorted as well. Whatever, what little they see was wildly distorted. And they had to stumble across these uneven sets. Not a good job.
1: But it's show business. And they were medicated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The
2: soundtrack, I love the
0: soundtrack. Graham Ravel doing the score for us.
2: Amazing.
0: So the dude with a knife in his back. That would be Eargun. Gun the Strange, we say. A lot of people say, you know, why does he have a knife in his back? We think of it as showing his mastery over pain. Sort of necromongers have this resistance to pain. As the purifier later says, it takes one kind of pain to dull other kinds of pain. And he picked up this wound in battle and he wears it now as a badge of honor. This is nice. I love this, the depth of a scene like this. And I love keeping that character back there out of focus, that choice. It's a beautiful cue by Graham, too. Listen to it. Mm. Really appropriate for the death of a major character.
2: I love Keith's expression. How you really thought he was going to overcome that necromonger. You, I really believe that.
0: They was going to go out, go out fighting anyway. Yeah. Listen to this cue. Isn't that something? Gorgeous. It's no, like, it amazing. I don't know. I sort of see like James Bond riding a horse over the over endless sand dunes. That's what I get out of it. It's just beautiful. We'll reuse it again in some other. Movie. This is what we call the Promenade Sequence. The, um, the day after the Siege of Helion Prime. Hey, he finally gets to show his face. We actually did have a few scenes between um, the Purifier and Column actually talking in our Act One, but uh, ultimately we thought it was more mystifying and stronger if they, if they had no verbal presence. And it was just all visually done. It's so regal.
1: It's so ironic, you know, Colin plays one of the meanest, nastiest characters in this film, yet he is one of the funniest guys on set, mm. constantly cracking jokes. I had the crew in stitches countless times. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so we thought of this as like Hitler in Paris after World War II, Hitler um, doing his promenade toward the Arc de Triumph, and that's what this is all about. And
1: his. The first glimpse of uh, Tandy. Tandy Newton as Dame Varko. Tandy
0: Newton, I was with a reporter today doing some press for the film, and, and his five words to describe the film were, Tandy, tight, dresses, very hot. was <laughs> <laughs> the description that's of the so film. so English. <laughs> uh, that's terrible. I was, yeah. Um, but not completely inappropriate. Yeah, she's striking, she's very striking.
2: Gorgeous. And such an incredible person as well. I so enjoyed her.
0: Here, humans in all their various races... This is Linus Roach as the purifier. The man who, um, outwardly is Marshall, Lord Marshal's right-hand man. His warm-up act, his confidant, his, um, one of his lead henchmen but uh, ultimately a guy who, who we understand has his own way and has his own conscience. A ravishing ever new place called... This is also different from the theatrical version of the movie. We sort of reduced it. There was a feeling that maybe this was too much talk, maybe too much philosophy, maybe too much for um, people to absorb in, in, you know, in one sitting. So there was an abbreviated version of this in the theatrical cut. I restore this to the original, what we call the original necromythology, which is, it it explains what they believe in as bizarre and as warped as it is, they explain it in greater detail here, that um, they've discovered this promised land and the promised land actually exists for them. And it's not one valley over, but it is is a new universe. You know, scientists have this concept of there may be multiple universes. And so we're postulating that uh, they have found the portal to another universe. And it is their, their version of heaven, their version of hell. It is where they will go in their afterlife. Uh, it is their promised land.
1: It was hard for me to accept
3: too when I first heard these words, but I changed. I, let
0: them I
2: love watching Linus Roach.
0: Yeah, he's so brilliant. What makes him so good, Carl? What do you think?
1: I think it's the truth that, uh, you know, there's just a sort of a truth and an honesty and an earnestness in his eyes, I guess.
2: And subtlety. There are so many actors in this film that I'm I'm so incredibly blessed to have been working with And this example of of Linus and his his subtlety and just how, you know, the tiniest look, the tiniest glance is so telling that we can't take our eyes off him. There's a... a silence that uh is powerful to watch and i learned a lot from everyone on this one
0: so is lord marshall ripping their soul out i don't think we ever really uh, got the visual effect right there are better examples of uh the astral, astral projection that the lord marshall does in the movie <laughs> Big moment coming up, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> get
1: out of the bucket, man. <laughs> Why is this guy not kneeling? I don't get it. Take the Lord Marshal's offer and bow. I bow to no man. There it is, baby.
2: I love that. Oh, what a
1: shot. When we were uh, in the early stages of coming up with the look for this character, I um, had this fantastic makeup artist, V. Nell. And we had these uh, conceptual drawings by this artist called Anthony Francesco. He was a young guy. And uh, one of them was kind of almost a Mohican warrior kind of styles. And uh, he uh, was sort of had this kind of haircut with a headpiece on. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get the headpiece together in time for my first day of shooting. So uh, that's kind of how we came up with the look. But I think then Linus kind of inherited... Uh,
0: he did, that's right.
1: <laughs> the the, the sort
0: of piece. It came in late in the day, and he inherited it in some way.
2: There was a moment when we questioned Kira actually having that haircut for the really? thing in yeah. the film, remember?
0: To somehow... When she becomes a necromonger. Oh, yeah, in Act 3, we were talking about it, like maybe she emulated You uh, wanted one look. of these haircuts, didn't you? I did. She, you know, the thing is, she was willing to go for it at the time. Uh,
2: uh, we were forbidden.
0: I think somebody thought it was a little extreme.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it wasn't me. So now we have um, Riddick facing off with Lord Marshall. This also differs from the theatrical cut of the movie, and I think it, in an interesting and good way. In the theatrical version of the movie, it's there's less of a connection between Lord Marshall and Riddick, and it becomes less personal because of it. And the, all these were cuts based on pacing issues more than anything else. And you're always on the fence as a director as to whether to include them or not. You know, it's better to have a paced-up movie that flows well or one that makes, you know, not only better sense, but is digs a little deeper into the characters. So this was the original mythology but between the Lord Marshal, that they are familiar to each other. Apprehension about each other without full comprehension. It's like they've met sometime in the distant past, but they can't quite put it together. And that's what we have here in, in this in this DVD version. And you'll see how it plays out later on.
2: If somebody just asked him, it is a rare offer, a visit.
1: Great moment for Tandy, using her (laughs) feminine sexuality to accomplish the task, and I love how Vin sniffs her. That's (laughs) That's classy.
0: And look at your look walking out the door. Right.
1: Mm. <laughs> Not impressed.
2: Carl has those, you have those eyes as well, Carl, that just are like, whoa, what is he thinking? You're desperate to know what you're thinking.
0: This is our first introduction to the Basilica, yeah.
2: That uh, set, oh
1: my god. That was a beautiful set. <gasps> Probably our, yeah,
0: our-, our
2: Every Grandest
0: corner. set. A lot of, this is actually full build up to the 36 foot high mark, and it's only, uh, when the camera tilts up into the rafters, does it become a CG shot?
2: But even the floor was a painting. Every pillar, every corner was just so intricate.
0: First two, two and a half floors of that is actually built. And there's a lot of discussion today about um, you know, whether you need to build sets this large anymore. Um, and it's the decision to build or to do a green screen is dictated by two things. How much action you're staging in that environment. And we had 20, 22 pages to shoot in here. But also, if you build it, it does two things well for you. It lets the camera guys see what they're filming and select better angles for it. And they become involved, they become creative because they're shopping for shots that you wouldn't have thought about if you had planned those shots as green screen shots. And then for the actors as well. We'd huge him, gift. we call him your walks in there and he sees this and he, suddenly he takes all that aboard. And he says, I get it, I am master of this universe. Mm. And this is this is my throne room, I get it. That's part of who I am. And then for all of us, for all of us who had to work there, Carl and and you guys know what it was like, too. Oh my
2: god, to feel it, really feel that environment, and and to be able to set foot there is just a massive gift.
1: It's really sort of helped um, uh, imbue us all with a sense of history and culture.
0: Of Necromonger history, too, because these these statues that we just saw there, this is the quasi-grotto which we've just entered, the quasi-dead grotto. And the statues, you see five towering statues of the five prior Lord Marshals that uh, Dame Baco was talking about just a few moments ago.
2: And explain how incredibly massive those Payne brothers were.
0: (laughs) And they were, the two first statues that you saw back there, we we dubbed them the Payne brothers. And they were, I guess, off their pedestal, I think they were 17 feet tall. So now we get into um, exploring Riddick's brain, his inner thoughts. Here come the quasi-deads, thought to be sort of the aesthetics of this faith, this religion, who have so sacrificed their bodily needs, they've put all their their metabolism, all their remaining function into their brains, and then they've become something of telepaths, and something of of mind-probers, because their brains are so strong, as their bodies are so withered, and so they're able to probe a person's mind and they actually speak through these, these chalices here. They don't speak through their mouths, but through the chalices. I wrote a line in the script, I thought Riddick's memories ought to be like a, a pile of rusty razor blades inside a man's head. Hmm. Because that's how strange his personal history must be. And so now we're getting a, a feel of that. A lot of this uh, sequence was, I um, had uh, two great editors, Martin Hunter and Dennis Verkler, but we had a third assistant by the name of Tracy Hall, who um, cuts a lot of this uh, flash stuff for us, the trick-rated footage? So here's the second coming of Shirah as well. She being a Furian from his past, somebody who can reach out and sort of be a beacon for Furians wherever they may have gone. Because the history is that once upon a time there was a uh, Lord Marshal sort of in a Lieutenant Cali action went to their world and and uh, killed a lot of newborns and basically uh, wiping out uh, a generation of Furians and sending a lot of them off in, into other places, other worlds. And now she's the lighthouse that, that is still on still on Furia, trying to uh, let people know who they are and what their history is and trying to bring them back eventually. That's the function of Shra in this story. <laughs>
1: to push Tandy out of the way and uh, jump into the action. This was my first experience at wire work. It was quite difficult, actually, because I was jumping into quite a tight, confined space. And the landing zone, there was like a step right in the middle of it, but I managed to pull it off without breaking anything.
0: Carl was pretty eager to do his own stunt works. I'm, I must say that uh, between Vin and Alexa and Carl, we had to love that shot of Tandy. Uh-huh. Who is this find man? Him. Whatever it takes, find him! Between the three actors, you know, look, if any actor tells you that he did all of his stunts in a big action picture, they are probably not being entirely honest with you. That said, Vin and Alexa and Carl did the lion's share of their work. And uh, they were an eager crowd.
2: Oh, I loved it. Loved
0: yeah. it. Especially I
1: don't see the point in letting somebody else have all the fun. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. that's why
0: Alexa left out because she was she wanted to try everything and every once in a while we just had to pull her out and say, you know what? This is stupid. Hey, Quick side, uh, I did make a cameo in the movie and it was the uh, the face on the sarcophagus ship that flips over Riddick. is looking at me like, are you kidding?
2: Really? <laughs> That's not fair. you can't give me away like that. You guys didn't know that?
0: Yeah. It was my uh, ode to Hitchcock and lifeboat.
1: I love Vin's one-liners in this film. I think that he's at his strongest when he's uh, undercutting the sort of pomp and circumstance of all the other characters.
0: Bursting their balloons. Yeah, bursting the balloons. What took you so long? And here's Christina Cox, who, um, she is in the theatrical version of the movie, but um, she had a nice little three-scene character arc, you know, just starting here, as the one to step forward and handcuff him. In theatrical version, I think one of the guys shot a neck gun at Reddick and took him down, but we reinstated that. She'll have another scene later on where she wakes up from a nightmare and she sees Riddick in the back of the ship and she goes over and has an encounter with him, a dangerous, a close encounter with Riddick. A very cool scene. And then a little um, a near-death sequence at the end of the uh, slam sequence. So we put those, a little three-scene arc back in for her.
4: I don't know, reading our BTUs maybe?
0: Let's drop one. Drop it. Launching a decoy.
1: I love this merc technology. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's rough and tumble, isn't it? It's very uh, yeah. It's very down and dirty, and that's what we love about the merc world. Preparing to
3: engage ion drive. So, where do we drop your merc killing ass? Who's gonna pay the most for you now? Butcher Bay. Butcher Bay. Ten minutes every other day on the dog run. Protein waffles aren't bad. Hey. How about Ursaluna? Nice little double max prison. They keep a
1: cell open for me, just in case I drop in. I love how, uh, how Riddick messes with that them in this scene. It's great. Mm-hmm. manipulates them into doing what he wants them to do.
0: Very good scene for
1: him, too, because he's having fun at Tooners' expense.
2: Yeah, it's Riddick playful in a, in a dark way. Yeah, a dark
0: little cool. No daylight slam, only
3: three of them left in the system. Two of them out of range for a shitty little undercutter like this one with no legs. Leaving just one crematoria.
0: So, this is Riddick steering Tomb bad. subconsciously toward the place he wants to go. Hey, how does he know where we're going and we don't? Dope it out. I hate this one. <laughs> just you got one line in the movie, and it's a funny one. About this new crew of
3: yours, <laughs> they seem a bit skittish. Probably should have tell him what happened to the last crew.
1: <laughs> I
2: love that.
1: That's so cool.
2: That smirk.
3: You know, you're supposed to be some slick shit killer. Now look at you,
1: all back of the bus. Yeah, yeah. My favorite Land film. All, all back of, back of the, of the bus. bus. Great dialogue.
0: I'll tell a story on tombs right there. It's, it was originally somebody else's line, one of the uh, assistant Merc lines, and then uh, Nick comes up to me and says, you know, uh, I really love that line. <laughs> <laughs> and it was before I would actually distributed the pages to the other guys, and he just like, you know.
2: Like, Snagged it.
0: Just jumped on it.
2: <laughs> I, g- I gotta have that line, DT. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good impression.
0: So we gave it to him, and it was, it was probably the right choice, you know. Yeah. Hey, Carl.
1: Yeah. I remember desert. this day, we, we shot this, uh, this was a second unit day with um, EJ, and, uh, and you came in and all you were concerned about was the lenser in the background and how his body language was. And, and mean, as like, opposed to the actor you. in the
0: foreground, you mean?
1: As opposed to the actor in the foreground, what am I, chopped liver?
0: <laughs> I assume you know what you're doing, you know how to move, you yeah, know how to I mean, walk no. from A to B. Uh, lenses were... <laughs> well, look, I was worried about it because it, it, uh, it wasn't looking good at first, you know. Yeah. So here's an interesting scene where it's all about, it's not about the you know the map table and the globes and all that kind of stuff, it's not about that at all. It's about Vako coming up behind the Lord Marshall and being willing to test him, to yeah. test his readiness, his situational awareness, and see how good he is.
1: Uh, I remember when we shot this, there was a bit of tension between Cole and myself. It was the first time, I believe, that we'd actually had a scene together, and uh, it was, uh, Difficult, but I think ultimately that the tension adds to the scene as these two characters are in conflict, and and Vako can't see the sense and reason for why, you know, the importance of one breeder.
0: Interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that light. I remember the night, of course, late at night. But mm-hmm. uh, do you think that was sort of subconsciously intentional, if there is such a thing?
1: No, I think that it was uh, about sort of you know, if you've got sort of two cogs, just getting them in time, really. And, uh, but I think it worked, and it added to the scene. And here we come really to the crux, the center core of their relationship, where we discover her manipulating Varko and, uh, pushing him to contemplate committing regicide. Why is it that
2: when anyone... One of my
0: favorite days of all of our days, Carl, I think you and Tandy know that, that it was just so good to not deal with visual effects and to deal with just acting and intentions and and our and our subtext just so much fun to get in there and, and work uh, you know good dialogue and good actors and receptive actors too so it was one of my best days
2: of lord
1: yeah the thing that i really appreciate about our whole working experience was that you know we could come to you and come to you with our ideas and stuff, and as the writer-director, you wouldn't feel um, it, it's sort of insecure or vulnerable that you're actually open to, uh, to trying it. And it's like, OK, well, even if you disagreed, you say, OK, well, we'll try one this way, and then we'll try one your way.
0: So what you're seeing now is the uh, extended-for-DVD version of it. The scene was presented about the first half of it was presented uh, ...in the theatrical version, all this is the the extension that we'd hoped to put in... ...but didn't put in for whatever reason.
2: You have such greatness in you. If only you could see it
1: like I do. It's a much more completed scene. I mean, you really get to the sense of... ...who these characters are and what they're about and how Dame Varko... F- ...sort of uses her sexuality and her feminine powers... ...to really sort of draw Varko into... The sort of area that... Uh, he he, he's, he really he really want to go to. Yeah. No. Everything. Listen to this. Listen to this. When no one's around,
2: I'm gonna get
0: down on my knees. <sighs> While you sit, on, sit the on the throne. In an attempt to save the scene, because it was thought to be so overtly sexual that it is to be unpalatable, right? In an attempt to save it, we cut it down to just Let's go down to Necropolis, which is the throne room down there, and you can sit on the throne. <laughs> and we just cut it down to that. But even that was thought to be, you know, had, it was too subliminally sexual or something.
1: Yeah, I always thought it was a strange place for a blowjob. I mean, quite a public place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you know, that's the, great, that's the danger of it, you see. And then we find that somebody else is already occupying that.
1: <laughs> oh, that's that commentary is That commentary's not going to make the cut, is it? <laughs>
0: but where has he gone? Where is the Furium hiding now?
2: You be the good warrior. Go after this verdict. I'll find out why the Lord Marshal is so threatened by him.
0: Here's the uh, second scene with Christina Cox, which was not in the theatrical cuts thought maybe to be a little too overt. And, and you know, honestly, it, it slowed the movie down, too, in terms of our ability to get to crematoria and get together with Kira, put Rick together with Kira. So it does slow that down. But boy, for boys age 13 to death, this is a cool scene. Abjured, huh? Do you
3: know you grind your teeth at night? Sexy.
0: <laughs> so this is our return to the planet crematoria. We first uh, were here when we visited Kira in the camel. being thrown into uh, isolation, I guess.
2: Unlocking i want to make 700 degrees on
0: the day side. I love this line by Nick.
3: <laughs>
2: what goes
0: over overlooked is that he's actually, uh, like, swiggling tequila to, a gargling tequila to wake himself up in the morning after his cryosleep.
1: <laughs>
4: That's epic.
2: Stand by. And... Plotted course. Good. It! Angle of approach. Not good.
3: myself.
0: Skittish, tombs, Very skittish. Party poppers were a little fun for us on that sequence. Actually, uh, (laughs) nobody knew what the pilot was saying when he screened party poppers. The things that slow down the ship. I'm not even sure people know what party poppers are. Do you know what they are? No. Oh, they're those little party favors that you pull the string out of and they blow out the other end? No, never. Anyway, we had fun with (laughs) it. I, got a big I guess you had to be there. I it's one of those things that, you know, I will laugh at every time nobody else knows what I'm doing. So so begins the uh, sled sequence. This is uh, the 30-mile, 30 30-kilometer 30 ride into um, between the, the hangar and the prison, per se, thought to be sort of a security buffer zone, so that you put a hangar not close to the prison, where other ships may be... Um, to land and maybe help prisoners make an escape, but you put it thirty miles away, a buffer zone, and so this is just a little, hopefully exciting sequence that gets us from the hangar to
1: slam. I love this. It's so cool. You see how smart the character of Riddick actually is. How he counts the the yeah. beats with the lights and then picks the right moment to look. Yeah, there he goes. Tap tap. Woof. Oh, big hit. <laughs> Jinlan, 4
4: ways split!
0: <laughs> uh. <laughs> Doesn't even care one of those guys got dusted. Yeah. No. no. <laughs> Mo for me. Mo for me. 29.4 kilometers. Tells you what the mercs are all about. The mercs are all about money. Hence, mercenaries. So... This is uh, this Alexander, is... one of our actual Russian guards. I'd suppose that... This place was being run by the remnants of uh, some Soviet bloc, sort of mafia organization, and uh, we were fortunate enough to find in Vancouver where we were filming a uh, sort of family of of Russian actors. Uh, They included Vitaly and Alexander here, who plays the prison boss for us. What in the bowels of Christ are you talking about? 700K? Don't take this one, boss. See. Anatoly he has a nose for trouble. And this one, this reading
3: guy, big big trouble. this
0: guy, so, this um seven hundred thousand. The big boy here, Vitaly, who plays the character of Anatoly. He was so nervous when he came into audition because he knew it, you know, it was a big film and Hollywood was coming to town and it was his big shot. And he had some scripted lines and he kept blowing his lines and blowing his lines and he was beating himself up in the room and he couldn't get three words out. Could not get three words out.
2: Uh, you know what it feels like to be an actor. <laughs>
0: And I felt so sorry for him because he was like he was like nearly hitting himself, and he would take his his little sides out between fucked up takes, and he would look at him and he would study him. and He goes, "Okay, okay, I'll go. I go again, I go again." I felt so sorry for him that I just said, "You know, forget the lines, just relax, and, and we'll just sort of talk improvisationally." And uh, finally, when he calmed down, he was he was a much different actor, and I realized he was a good actor, you know, just struggling with words and struggling with. And nerves.
2: It's a test, an audition. It's a, it's a difficult thing.
0: These are dangerous days, if you believe the talk. Talk? About dead planets about some Even the prison guards, as sequestered as they are from the rest of the universe, have the sense that some, it's coming to an end and that worlds are dying around them and that there is a menace out there. And mm. here goes Riddick. Now again, that's, uh, the, these first few shots here are actually Vin doing his own thing in terms of inverting himself, in terms of flipping over, in terms of starting up the rope. Every once in a while we had to slip in a, uh, a guy from uh, one of the Cirque du Soleil guys who was one of those rope experts. But I would say that you know the first 75% of what you see there is actually Vin yeah. and him just muscling into position. And it was quite a sight to see, because we were ready to put the uh, the stunt guy in at a moment's notice. But Vin sort of kept going and going, I can do this part of it, I can do this part of it. And he could. Yeah.
2: I was always amazed at how quickly he could learn a stunt. Just by seeing it once, it was immediately branded into his muscle memory somehow.
0: Yeah. And he's, think thing about Vin singing from Pitch Black into Chronicles is he gets a lot better at that. He gets a lot, he's better at his stunts now, having, you know, triple X under his belt and whatnot. I've seen him grow in that way, that he's, he's more willing to take on the stunts, and he picks them up there quicker.
2: Yeah, he moves brilliantly.
3: There are a convict has a certain code.
0: That's why Riddick came here.
3: To show a certain
0: respect. The vibe I get from you there is that I knew I would see you again someday. Yeah. And guess what? There's going to be hell to pay. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but she proves herself in that first moment of reconnecting with him, which is what she would always want.
0: And she kind of saves his ass in a way, right? Mm-hmm. So, which are you going to be? Me?
3: I'm just passing
0: through. Hmm. Welcome, to hmm so most people miss it, but right there in the background, you see the Kira drop through the mist and, and get the drop on Rick from behind.
2: Should I go for the sweet spot?
0: This is all code talk from Pitch Black. It's a recall to Pitch Black. But uh, uh, not many people notice it who, who hadn't seen the original movie, but hopefully those who did will appreciate it. And this is where the relationship gets a little complicated for them, because before she was clearly a child, and now she's not a child. And uh, she's clearly a sexual career. And, and it's got to change the relationship.
2: Yeah, this scene was really, really fun and hard to work on. There's so many layers, there's so many pieces of their relationship. Um, the mentor apprentice love, hate, an odd sexual tension there that I almost think is unintentional. I think she has sort of found that within herself and uh, uses it as a defense mechanism. So there's a sort of push and pull between the two of them that was really interesting to play with that day and in rehearsal.
0: Well, even though Mom says uh, she thinks of you as an older brother, it doesn't really look like it's shaping up that way anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe in part, but not. it ain't all that. There's something well, I else
2: think, going on. Yeah, I think somehow emotionally there's still that sort of she looks up to him and still has that feeling, but there is and ultimately it, a man and a woman that are dealing with each other on a on a very tense level, which creates that energy between them somehow.
0: I love the stunt. I, l- I like how she leaves just a, look, a reminder of her at the end.
2: The Kira kiss
0: kissed the cut on his cheek. So oh, Here's uh, Vako's warship in space, his frigate, his fast frigate. This is the scene, Carl, where um, one of the editors, the second editor to come on our show, Dennis Verkler, watched a rough cut of the film, and it's this scene that convinced him that, that you are hot shit, because he, he said, that guy it. really believes he is a commander in this Neckermonger army. Uh, just the conviction he displayed, especially in this scene, made Dennis say that.
1: Wow, cool. That uh, was the challenge, actually, is to, you know, kind of really entrench the character in, uh, in the culture, of course, which we knew very little about. So, I think consequently, all the actors sort of really had their sort of miniature versions about what it was that, you know, necromongers were and their culture and their history. And uh, to me, it was um, loyalty was one of, sort of the key sort of cornerstones of, of, of my character that, you know, if I serve the Lord Marshal, then I will be rewarded. And uh, here in the scene with Linus, he is, from my perspective, testing that loyalty. Of course what we actually subsequently find out that he's doing is uh, really probing me to see if, you know, I would sort of be in alliance with, with him and um
0: and voicing his own fears. He's he's almost That's right. projecting his own thoughts on Vako. The audience doesn't realize it now, they may in retrospect, but all the doubts that he's putting on Devaco, he's actually feeling himself. So glad I could
2: steal you away it. Doesn't it strike you odd? Here we have the car. Current- this
0: is the interrogation scene between uh, Arion and Dame Vaco. Some confusion over, like, you know, are those chains, are those bells, what are those you know, dragging down the stairs behind Arion? The feeling was that the Necromonger's Lord Marshall was sort of belling the cat to put these, if not chains, on her, which she does wear, these noisemakers as well, so that this creature who has the, uh, the ability to come and go with the wind, to be invisible could never sneak up on you if, in fact, you were draping her in chains.
1: So what would they actually be attached to when she was um, thin air?
0: Well, we also think of her not so much as somebody who can dematerialize and rematerialize, but as somebody who is always there, like the Invisible Man. It's like, you can put chains on the Invisible Man, can't you? Yes, he's always there. He's just invisible. I kind of think this was unfortunately Judy's first day of filming, unfortunately only because it was such a technically demanding day. This is the day that, you know, she had blue dots on her face and that she's surrounded by green screens. Horrendously complicated because anytime we shot Judy it was with a motion control camera and we wound up going through this onerous exercise of building a real set and then building a shadow set made out of green screen but had the same contours of this real set and going from one to the other and one to the other horrendously technical and, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a tribute to her and Tandy that they were actually able to, you know, get good performances even despite the technical demands
1: of it. Fury is a ruined world, no life to speak of. And you really get to see here the, uh, the dynamic of the Vacos and how they work together as a team. They're quite formidable and, you know, Tandy really is the brains to Varko's muscle, I guess. An artful stroke, wouldn't
2: you say?
1: So this warrior, the one who tried to with the prediction, would later become. That's
2: why he worries.
0: These are the the lesser quasi's, thought to be used as telepaths. To instead of uh, you know overcoming the problems of deep space radio communications, which would naturally have a delay on them, they use these uh, these telepaths to convey in real time, so you can get real time conversation in space. And this is Riddick waking up in prison and having this premonition about the same time they're talking about him and they're starting to put the pieces of the puzzle in place about who is Riddick to the Lord Marshal. Riddick is also uh, putting it together in his brain, in his sleep, in prison.
1: I remember we shot the uh, the two ends of this phone call at different times. We did mine first and then you went and shot Tandy's. And then at the end of the scene, Tandy sort of does this sort of strokes this here we go strokes this this quasi in a sort of uh, very sort of sexual manner and And you you guys came up to me and said, oh, yeah, Tandy's done this great thing and, and, uh, you know, we we want you to do something really similar. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool, cool. And then I see it and I'm sort of, my mind's going at 50 million miles now going, okay, how am I going to get out of this one? There's no way I'm going to kiss that thing. So, uh, she actually. but then you kind of let me in that you were joking, but I was kind of saying, no, no, I'd be keen to do it. I'd be keen to do it and really thinking, no, I'm not going to do it. Oh, really? All right. I'm going to compromise my warrior look.
0: Another sequence now that uh, did not make into theatrical cuts, just a little scene between Riddick and Kira.
2: I remember how complex it was to create that oh, yeah. entire wall of water. I've
3: been here 18 years. See this? I remember how gorgeous she was. Well. Gorgeous in a certain this
0: night. is a little backstory for The Gov uh, that I wanted to include on the Gov. DVD because it was part of uh, The Gov's motivation for breaking out with Riddick and doing the final fight with him. So uh, just that he had a wife and he's been in here so long. He remembers what she looks like. He remembers that she was close to beautiful. But uh, he's forgotten her name. At least that's his cover story. Here come the hellhounds, uh, all CG creations, and done for us um, really well by Rhythm and Hughes, Richard Hollander, and uh, Mike Wissell helped us uh, with these babies. Originally, we thought of them as more dogs than anything else, but they were sort of turned into, you know, half lions, half wolves, with scales, and um, so they have qualities of each, both feline and canine. But really beautiful work. And just enough so that you can think they were dogs who sort of were genetically engineered to work and live on this planet, this planet alone. This is such a nice sequence. Uh, Rhythm Hughes dropped in all that water for us as well, that CG water, and the beast seen through the water and coming through the water. And the rivulets of water down his muzzle. Fun moment in the movie. Yeah, I love this scene. When we time jump ahead.
1: I love how he pets that, that animal. It's so wonderful. Cool. boy.
0: Vin has a, uh, a very large dog at home, um, you know, just slightly smaller than this one. Slightly. And uh, so it was he who said, you know, this is really, you don't really pet a dog this side. You, you sort of slap-pat it, and you hit it right in the shoulder area, too. And that's a big friendly move. It's that's what animal. I would do to my dog, so.
3: Check her for me, she's always got a blade somewhere.
2: This is a scene that was so much fun to do and so difficult and challenging, but um, ultimately gives, gives a good sense of what Kira has learned, I think, in growing up and getting older. To use her sexuality and her femininity in such a dangerous environment to her advantage. Uh, in luring the enemy just close enough to make her doubly dangerous, and then the fight scene to follow was an extraordinary piece that Brad Allen, and Bob Brown worked on our stunt team, and uh, we worked on it for months even prior to beginning our shooting. So it was a lot of work.
0: And it also answers the questions of like, how does this girl? There are there are females in this prison. We see them occasionally.
2: How do they survive?
0: How do they survive? You know, and why aren't they the first to be raped? Well, this is what happens when you try right. to rape Kira. That you're going to take your licks too.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't think she likes being touched.
2: And the element of surprise that both Kira and Riddick have again here. He
0: go. Well, you he still can. This is an audience favorite coming up. Uh, you've seen it with an audience, right, Carol? Yeah, yeah, the teacup. The they teacup love Kira. the teacup. The
3: best. Of yours, huh? What happens there when we don't just run away? You'll kill us with a soup cup. (laughs) Tea actually. Was that? I'll
0: I'll kill you with with my my tea cup. (laughs) I love the guards are a little uncertain about this. He's kidding, isn't he? It's like he can't. Yeah, he couldn't do that. He is. Okay, you
1: see the. I like how you see the teacup. It's all clean in the beginning and the end. It's jagged with blood and guts all over it. They aren't dead if they're still in the books.
2: That moment of, of admiration. Oh,
0: <laughs> Down he goes.
3: Come on.
1: <laughs> he picks up the key. <laughs>
0: That's the uh, the other shooter drop. It's like hey, I'll kill you with this. I'll kill you with like a Hampton key. Sardine. Sardine <laughs> key. And then they fuck off. Love it.
2: Death by Tco.
1: Ooh, that teacup. Gruesome.
2: Why didn't I think of that?
3: I didn't come here to play who's the better killer.
2: But it's my favorite game.
3: Haven't you heard?
0: I heard you came looking for me.
2: Is that all? Then you missed the good part.
0: One of our better days on the set.
2: Oh, yeah. Good scene. So they take me on, teach me the trade, give me a good cut. They slave me out, Riddick. This is important, I think, for Kira to be able to actually have that moment with him of really explaining what it is that she's been carrying with her this whole time.
0: And knowing how to push his buttons, because oh, yeah. Riddick isn't going to react like this to anybody else but this one person, isn't right. going to give this much, isn't going to show this much emotion or give this much up to any other person in the world. No.
2: And shooting this scene was so amazing for me to work with Vin <laughs> on the range in this scene, from this calm and cool collected to, you know, just there's so many different colors in this scene. To the rage uh, that both of them have ultimately, and uh, working with Vin was just amazing. We just had such a great time on this scene. It's
1: powerful, wasn't it?
2: Oh yeah, no, he
1: was. The thing I liked, the thing I liked about working with Vin is that he wasn't one of these narcissistic actors. is just. Solely concerned with his character and how he comes off. He's actually very interested in everybody else and, and has fantastic ideas and, and uh, was there, you know, was just there all the time. You, you could go to him anytime and, and he was fun to work with.
2: So much, yeah. Generous that way.
1: Yeah.
0: So this is uh, the guards driving the control room to the surface of Crematoria, our second look at the surface, and it kind of sets up the. Um, danger to come and reinforces that Riddick is always, escape is never far away from his thoughts, never far from his mind.
3: So they do go
0: topside
3: to swap out air. Interesting. Who the hell are you? When it happens, it'll happen fast. Stay on my leg when I cut fence or stay here. For the rest of your natural life. Nobody outs this place. Nobody.
2: He ain't nobody.
0: It's actually a great shot. I remember you being concerned that it maybe felt like a, too much like a Pantene commercial on the day that we shot it. Yes, yeah,
2: it felt so staged.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it, re- it looks really cool by it the time felt it all just so comes to together. Me. So a lot of people ask, uh, w- really, what is the difference between the unrated director's cut and the normal edition of the movie? And aside from just reinstituting scenes, which we were on the fence about at the time, a lot of footage was put back into this version of the DVD that we took out for the MPAA reasons. Um, we were we were releasing as a PG-13, and um, this film was uh, kind of felt like an R to them, especially. As a matter of fact, six times it felt like an R to the MPAA. So a, a lot of the footage and um, some of the more violent stuff got uh, cut out of the theatrical release, just because it was such a uh, Sometimes, uh, I think it was, they rated R for overall intensity. That's what's so hard to address from a filmmaker standpoint. Because they, they're loath to identify a given scene that is problematic because for fear of uh, being accused of censorship. So um, this is one of the scenes, this fight out between the guards and the mercs that uh, they found a little too intense for the theatrical version. I love the feeling of an incipient disaster here. Mine else's
3: and i want my money now so you stole a prisoner from them
0: it's a good scene when it's uh, presented in its entirety. It's a good shootout. E.J. Forster, us out. It's Forcer a great Yeah, it's a great shootout.
3: Should've taken the money,
1: Tombs. <laughs> I love how Reddit climbs over tombs to get out. That's so <laughs> great. <laughs>
0: This is a nice shot to do this all-in-one, this climb-up shot here, too. It really shows the relationship between lower prison and the control room above it, and to play it out gives uh, a really good sense of depth. Obviously, that's green screen about 20 feet uh, below Vin, but we put in the prison behind him and let him crawl all the way up that rope.
1: Which I presume he did himself, yeah?
0: (laughs) Did his own stunt there.
4: Yeah.
0: This is the third little bit that we restored with um, Christina Cox.
2: You gonna kill me?
0: She assumes that Riddick, being the dark-hearted soul that he is, is just gonna take her out. Works its way out of theatrical cut, but I'm glad we have it here because Riddick has a choice to make, and he does the unexpected thing. It's that even though you were trying to capture me earlier, trying to kill me earlier, I choose not to do that to you. And it speaks to him. It's like you, you'll you'll die soon enough. I don't have to speed your demise.
3: Guards here,
0: but this can't be all of them. Check the slots in the back,
3: and be careful. Peter,
0: convict number one. Sniper.
3: Sniper.
2: Sniper. York named him Sniper, and it stuck.
3: Break wide through the tunnel, and then somebody got a lucky shot off with this rocket launcher here, and took out the sled. Guards took off on foot, but rigged the door so no one could follow. They'll take the one ship in the hangar and leave everyone else here to die. How come you know all this shit? You weren't even here. Because it was my plan. I should have taken the money.
0: So now we get into uh, Tombs' demise when you see how it was originally planned how he would meet his uh, his end in a very different way than what is uh, presented in this cut and the theatrical cut. And it was done, the reason that um, we didn't have him die at the teeth of the hellhound is because it slowed things down just too much. I mean, we know now that we're in a race with the guards and if, if we have this talk scene about what we're gonna do, explaining, Riddick explained to them what's going on, that the guards have already left, they're gonna get to that ship first, and then if we drive to the surface and we look out and we have another talk scene, and then if we step out and we talk some more about you know, the ground rules of the run, and the, you know, the one thing we have to do is stay out of the light this time. Sort of the reverse tip of the hat to pitch black in the run we had in that movie. It all just took too long. Uh, when the guards were running, we should be running. It's moving in the right direction.
3: We could make it. Stay behind the night. Ahead of the sun. There's gonna be one speed. Mine. If you can't keep up, don't step up. You'll just die.
0: And here we begin with our, what we call the Terminator Run. Terminator is that uh, that narrow band of light, that travels across the surface of the planet, the cusp between night and day, and that's the band of light that they have to, the band of dusk that they have to stay in. Not too cold, not too hot, just right. This is what we call the crashback shot. Three big pullbacks to show you exactly where we are and what the circumstances are. The burning day behind us, the endless night in front of us.
2: I loved, loved doing this sequence.
0: And should we mention that, remember, we are a uh, stage-bound show, and all these vistas that you see out there are created artificially. We never left the stage when we did this. Mm-mm. So Holger created this this vast lava field for us to run over that was endlessly fascinating with its crevices and its rises and falls and its arches. And it's dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous because the actors would, could easily blow out a knee running over that kind of train. And they did on occasion. Mm-hmm. But, um, all shown on stage.
1: It was a great set to work on, work on. had a good vibe about it.
4: I
2: love the soundtrack, I love this part.
0: Yeah. That's cool. I love this, looking back at the sun that's chasing you. wasn't in the theatrical version, but because. Again, pacing. You know, sometimes we pay homage too much to the to the pacing God, but uh, this is a nice moment to remind you of what's chasing you. So this is the uh, Antoli character, who's got a nose for trouble, sensing that maybe they aren't alone on this run.
3: Take a look, because Anatoli says
0: so. So they send uh, a hapless Dougie up there. We <laughs> call these mole holes, thought to be sort of access holes for the. This underground tunnel that runs between the uh, the prison proper and the hangar, thirty clicks away. There's
3: nothing up here. Going for our ship. No chance they get the hangar
1: first. No chance. Coming up to the ash rain. Oh god. It's a beautiful shot, isn't it? The how is that to working?
2: It was the, probably best described as as bits of newspaper and down feathers
1: up your in your nose.
2: in your nose and mouth and throat and eyes and ears. <laughs>
1: It's got, it's got a great look it though. It looks great. Uh, it looks amazing.
0: One. Again, when you know, every production gets rushed rush for time, rush for schedule, and sometimes, oftentimes, you're asked to strip things out of the movie. And this was one of those that, that was on the chopping block, uh, but it had such a, I knew it would have such a good look to it that I just stuck to my guns and said, we're not taking this one out. No, we're, it's we're so it. beautiful to look at.
1: When I saw it actually I was gutted that by the time Varco arrives on Crematory that the Ash Rain's finished. I just thought it was so cool to be in that.
0: But it would have been nice, yeah. Great reveal of Riddick on top of the molehole cover. Like Yeah. Where's the big guy? <laughs> just lets him have it. Great fun moment. Here's Kira about to kick the shit out of the guards again, you know. And yeah, I think we struggled with this on the day because it was like, you know, how much animosity does she have towards these guards? And would she really pause here and like spend time doing this? Sure.
2: But oh. I think that's the child in her a bit. That's the, the young girl in her that still has that desire for revenge and that um, sort of lack of awareness of, of reality for that split second.
3: You don't care if you live or die?
2: If I kill them first, not really.
3: Maybe I do. Keep moving!
2: Cliff face.
0: So this is obviously a, um, a set piece that was built for us to climb on, and um, the actors on wires for the most part. But it's a, you know, it's a styrofoam set that's been hard-coded on top of it, but Vin was taking this big sideways leap and he actually pulled apart the set, and in reality, on the raw take, you'll see big chunks of uh, white styrofoam crumble away there. And of course we thought it was a mistake and we had to patch the set and do it all over again, that was going to take too much time, I said basically fuck it. You know, I'll have the visual effects guy turn those styrofoam chunks into rocks, know, rocks So cool. crumbling rocks. And that's a, a case of, you know, turning a liability into an asset, it turned out good. A nice little touch.
3: Kira? Kira? What? Get that ass moving!
2: This was a lot of. We were all on, on harnesses at this stage, and even though the set wasn't as massive as it appears to be, it was actually quite high up.
0: Probably 30 feet off the ground, 25, yeah. 30 feet off the ground. At least,
2: yeah. And this was a, a piece that we sort of elaborated on in, in reshoots, actually the heat of the rocks and the the temperature.
0: Oh, that's right, because uh, initially we felt like Kira, we didn't have this bit initially, where she's um, fighting her way out, or the bit you saw back there, but where she's trying to fight her way out, but just the rocks get too hot too quickly, and she just knows she's gonna burn to death out there. Well, this is
2: her not wanting to give up, um, and yet, not knowing if she's really gonna be able to do this.
0: And begrudgingly turning to Rick for help.
2: Yeah, very much so. Right very much so.
1: Oh, I love that shot of the sunrise. It's kind of like, it's alive. It's like an animal.
2: Mm.
0: We call that uh, the VTF, the visible thermal front, sort of a manifestation of, uh, of the sun itself. How it scalds the surface of the environment and creates um, because the temperature differential creates a vapor, a fiery vapor that marches across the landscape.
1: Great sequence.
0: Cool shot of in, huh? Yeah. I always wanted to get the shot of the other guy who's stuck on the cliff face reaching out for Riddick and just getting him passed by. (laughs) (laughs) And Riddick goes on to save Kira. He thinks Riddick's coming for him. (laughs) And look at this Vin smoking, Riddick smoking.
2: And that rescue, that rope um, stunt, he did. He did that.
0: Yeah, that's Vin on the rope. And that's obviously you too.
2: That was actually my very, very last day of shooting. Where the hell is that hangar? very fun and very sad all at once.
3: There it is. Listen.
0: So now just about the time you, you, you what you thought was a two way race becomes a three-way race now, with the introduction of Neckmongers and Vaco. Wasn't
1: this your, actually my first day. Your yeah. first day, I was gonna say. First day.
0: Wasn't there a big discussion about helmet on, helmet off?
1: Uh yeah, we did, we did. Um I, I was, was tending to think that you know, it wasn't going to be a, Vaku was thinking it wasn't gonna be a big battle situation that, you know, he's after one breeder and there was no no need to go the full distance. And also, I wanted to show my hair off, you know? I thought that, uh... Get the fucking bucket (laughs) off my head,
0: please, you know? (laughs) No bucket acting anymore. Now the lenses are sort of keying in the fact that they may not be there. There's somebody out there. You need to check that out. Three minutes
2: before the sun hits us again. Burns out this whole valley. Wait. We gonna do this or not?
3: Just wait. I love
2: that. Just
3: wait. Just chill. The
2: entire world yes. is falling apart, but Riddick says, just wait.
3: Her name was Ellen, I never really forgot.
0: There's the payoff for the gov. It's like why he joined the run, why he's busting out with Riddick. He does have his wife, and he does remember her his, her name. He was fooling himself as well as everyone else around him.
2: That's the moment I met.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. A lot of this got cut out for the, uh, for the MPAA um, stuff, and uh, so happy to put it back in. Let's play. This is such a cool start of such a cool stunt sequence. Um, mm-hmm. One of Vin's bigger stunts here, where he comes flying over the arch and lands on this guy. He's doing it in one right there, taking him out.
2: every step of this choreography he learned so quickly in a matter of minutes. I, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe it. And designed it as well quite a bit.
1: Great stunts, great moves. A lot big roundy roundy here. Yeah, I love that. That's great. It's good to see them working as a team. Mm.
0: Just Kira being an extension of Riddick and vice
1: versa, right? Yeah. yeah. Is Bako biding his time? Just waiting for the opportune time as he watches his men get wasted. And
0: Riddick going into his killing fugue. It's just like, I don't even have to think about this, I just... I am. He's sort of zenning his way through it. <laughs> is a cool stunt. There's actually a design by a storyboard guy, Brian Murray, who um, doped this out in a storyboard fashion. We actually executed one of those rare times where you follow the storyboards. No! There goes Boss dying a uh dying his death. Oh <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> the <heat rolling> down. <laughs> then the decapitation, which is uh, did not make it into the theatrical version no, for some reason. I can't understand gee, why. Gee, why was
2: that, David? I, New to my <laughs> eyes.
0: I just, it uh, just would not fit under the uh, PG-13 lim- limbo bar. I love Kira where she like pulls the knife out of the guy's eye socket here.
1: It's a lot more clear in this version, actually, what actually happens in that. Yeah, that's how, true. How, how, you know, Riddick pulls up the the necro and that's how come he's not wasted. Yeah, it is clear. There's the end of the gov. Hmm.
2: I hate that moment.
1: Great shot. Shooting deep into it. That was a fantastic set, that runway. I love that spaceship at the end there. Was that your
0: stunt?
2: That was um, a stunt double. It was a Small Chinese man, actually.
0: Dressed as you? Yes. And padding <laughs> Dresses, himself?
2: Padding, yes, in the breast area, the wig, the costume. The, uh, <laughs> I actually helped him. I helped him get dressed.
0: <laughs> I remember that being a particularly ugly day.
2: Quite an interesting process. Yeah,
0: but I said, you know, if it's fast enough, you keep the camera moving, you can get away with anything. <laughs> so this is uh, not in the theatrical version, this is Vako approaching Riddick uh, to put him down for, for once and for all. But it also marks the uh, the reappearance of Shara. Riddick's muse, his Furian muse. And uh, Riddick's uh, ultimate epiphany about who it was, who that, um, that haunting figure is. And, that's been haunting his dreams and his tie is linked to the Lord Marshal.
2: This mark carries the anger of an entire race. But it's going to hurt.
1: It was great to be on set and uh, and watch Vin really go for this that day. I mean, he was all there just by himself kneeling and, you know, I mean, contorting his body like he was going to have an aneurysm or something.
0: Yeah, I thought he was going
1: to throw, throw a clot
0: on us or something.
2: Completely, out, there's nothing around him, nothing completely
1: on the screen. I mean, look at the way the veins in his neck are popping. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then his moment of epiphany leads to. Oh! boom! Leads to the race of fury. What we called the race of fury. I
1: love that transition. Which is, sort of, which is a Furian trait, is it?
0: It's just sort of the combined um, this fear energy that passes between Shiran and him and rekindling, you know, these latent energies inside him as a Fury and as a different race, a warrior race. And it's so it's the sort of the pent up anger of uh, of an entire race, as she says. Shots there where the uh, the shadow breaks across, sweeps across the runway, retreats across the runway to reveal Litigan somewhere. That
2: sound is so creepy.
1: That is cool. Yeah. like that, making that choice with free will.
0: Yeah, much discussion about uh, how to get uh, Kira aboard the ship and whether she should be doing it herself, whether she'd be dragged aboard the ship and... Um,
2: there was a lot of inner questions with that, definitely. Yeah,
0: because she has to, the key to it for me was that she had to believe Riddick was dead. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, so there's no going back for him, what do I do to save myself now? And in that, she is, she's Riddickian, you know, because that's what Riddick would do too. You're dead, I can't help you, I, I move on.
3: I was supposed to deliver a message to you, if Akko failed to kill you, a message from the Lord Marshal himself. He tells you to stay away from Helion, stay away from him,
0: and in return you'll be hunted no more. Varko will most likely report you as dead. So this is your chance?
4: Your chance to do what no man has ever done?
0: The girl. Here's where it gets really interesting for me. It's just a viewer to understand that this character has been harboring a secret the whole movie, and only now when you reveal that he has this same brand that that Riddick has, and when two fear the idea is that when two (laughs) furians are in proximity, they have this brand that sort of resonates with each other here. And uh, that he's been harboring the secret and this this angst all along about his participation in this dark empire, this dark faith. Unbelievable things, in the name of a faith that was never my own. And that's a beautiful line right there.
2: So beautiful.
0: I think it's a line that uh, Linus came up with too.
2: The dialogue in this scene is, is some of my favorite.
1: Necromonger in me warns you not to go back. Love that look out. Mm. Like he already knows what he's going to do. He foreshadows it.
4: Mm.
1: Brilliant actor, Linus. Hopes you won't listen.
0: God knows. I've dreamed of it.
2: The walk that Linus did, I remember watching him do this scene and I thought to myself, my God, physically how he bent and twisted and, and lost his balance. It just was pretty extraordinary to watch. Yeah. His knees buckling and he did that all on his own.
1: The way he threw his arm up like that too, Linus. Mean, yeah. So cool, man. That was the, uh, Goodnight
0: New York move. <laughs> so there you go. Now we're back uh, on Helian Prime somewhere.
1: Okay, so this is Varco, uh, back at the Basilica, getting decorated for his valor and service. For theoretically killing Riddick. Yeah. Nice new outfit. Golden lay. Good work by Alan and her team.
0: Alan and Jenny. Your steady faith.
3: And above all, your unflinching loyalty.
1: There's a good moment here where uh, column looks at me and uh, can just sort of see a that certain uncertainty or sense it. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: The reservation in your face? Great. Yeah. Great. It's like, I hope I I hope I accomplished what you think I accomplished, because I'm not yeah. quite sure. And this is basically where we tag the scene, cut it, in the theatrical version, and um, we've restored the full scene now, which is the conversation with Dane Baku as well, after the decoration, where you learn what
1: the real scoop is. Which is great, because that actually gives her a motivation to go out oh, and double check. Mm-hmm.
2: You have killed his enemy.
1: And his. She really wanted to play with that helmet. You saw him,
2: you saw him dead on the
1: ground. Riddick was no common breeder. In a heartbeat, he dropped twenty of
2: mysteries are not miracles. Not this was
1: fun to do, actually. I really liked the way you had us like whispering, like a couple of vipers, and talking over each other, and.
0: Yeah, you can do that in a two-shot, and uh, I was happy to do it here, because I thought it ought to be very quiet in each other's ears, very conspiratorial. And the, and the softer it was and the faster it was, the better the scene cut.
3: The two profiles like that are beautiful. Tell me the Furyan is gone, and I can close his campaign without hearing his footsteps. If he is dead,
2: I sense
0: I'm not far... These two actors were him. so pleased to work with each other. No Colm is a very funny guy, as we mentioned before, and he can... Very facile, very quick-witted, and um, very versed in Shakespeare, so you can imagine that uh, he and Judy got along infamously. But I do remember uh, rehearsal very early on, Carl over at my apartment, where we had, um, I think, all the neckmongers there, and we were talking about Macbeth. And there's some question about how Act Two ended in Macbeth, and, and I think I... I had the mistake of made the mistake of saying maybe we should run out and get get the text and yeah, check it out. Absolutely. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and and, and Colin's like, no, 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 wait, I'll do it. And so there he goes, and he does the entire play of Macbeth in five minutes. Great speeches, all of it.
0: it, it playing at least five different characters, maybe seven yeah. different characters in voice. And he gave us like Quite this, this five-minute version of, of uh, Macbeth, and it was over, and it was concise, and it was well presented. <laughs> And it was done in five minutes. My god, that was Macbeth.
2: He can do it with Hamlet as well.
0: Yeah. Nice little moments where, where, you see, I'm trying not to show Redicure, but I'm trying to feel his presence nonetheless. And the little girl finding the necklace on the door. It's such a nice touch, it's really exciting. He's back. I'm back. Get my
1: armada off the ground. Great shot of Tandy, she suspects.
0: Suspects that something is afoot. First, she's disturbed by the fact that this armada is leaving earlier, prematurely, than um, she thought they would. And that says to her, that the Lord Marshal is suspicious of something, and something's happening.
1: Which could directly uh, threaten her existence, obviously. This next seems a uh, really fun thing to work on. Uh, it's sort of really the climax of the Vaco Dame Vaco conspiratorial relationship, where they sort of discover that they have no choice but to act, uh, but to commit regicide. Could you be wrong?
0: Mind fear. Could As we worked be it in wrong, rehearsals, so one of the things that came from it was it's lie. not enough to just say he's going to kill us, so we have to kill him first. Vaco wouldn't be convinced be by that because he's too good of a soldier, right? But she's going to push another button in him, that it's good for the faith to overthrow the king, the Lord Marshal. It's good for the faith as well. It's good for all necromongers. And that's what he responds to. And that came out of the rehearsal process, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it was valuable. I mean, ultimately it was, what is the final log on the fire? And it's that the Lord Marshal is unworthy because he is betraying the faith. He has fear, he has weakness, he's not worthy. And, And... so, in a sense, Vargo is loyal to the Faith, to to ultimately disloyal break. to the Lord Marshal. And mm-hmm. uh, there is a higher calling he which he's responding to.
2: If he has fear...
1: We watched a bit of um, Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, and I really liked how some of his characters would appear out of the blackness and stuff. So I remember on the day we you know, asked for the, you know, one of the last takes, if we could you know, do it in the darkness for the last conspiratorial yeah. moments. Turn out the lights. He was a bit sort of... You know, not keen to do it, but it, it looks great.
0: Hugh Johnson, who delivered, you know, consistently good look for us, really good look throughout the picture, and this Amazing. is uh, this is one of the best shots in it. And when he saw it, you know, he fell in love with it too. DP's will always do that, but they just don't want to do it on the first couple of takes. They want to make sure we all do. We want to make sure that we have a safe take uh, uh, in the bank first, and then experiment by turning out this light, this light, that light. Final protocol.
3: Execute on
0: my order. We call this little icon mini-me. So it's a, a small version, a control version of the big icon outside which uh, has this energy orb in it which is uh, responsible or will be, can be the responsible for the destruction of a planet. Uh, the orb launching and sort of hanging like a sword of Damocles over the, uh, the world of Alien Prime. It's a great take here. Take one. Take one when they threw the dead blender's at his feet. Calm did not know we were rolling film. He thought it was a rehearsal. And so they throw the lending necro down at his feet. And he looks at it and he says, that's one dead motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> and you should see the looks of the people around him trying to stay in character. It's like, <laughs> you know, and he's just totally shocked him and, uh, and he went on to riff a little more. And then you see the slow dawning in his face of like, wait a second, everybody else is staying in character and I'm not in character. <laughs> it's like being caught with your pants down. <laughs> and he looked right in camera with this for the first and only time I've ever seen him fearful, it's like, god was that a take we had him wrapping his hands around this cord here um, sort of in memory in vestigial memory of having uh, once placed a cord on Riddick's neck wonderful shot
1: both of you guys we all relieved Andy well,
2: yeah. It's a pretty incredible shot, that one.
1: <laughs> and it's quite amazing how she had time to change her dress.
2: <laughs> and that dress was extraordinary. We got, we
1: looked... got stuck in this. Uh, we
0: were rewriting Act 3 a bit on the day, as I recall, and um, there was a greater time jump, time increment uh, planned than what we ultimately wound up with. So it's like she would have time to change dress guess. But then again, if you're going to kill the king, you better be dressed for the job. We're having some fun here with how Riddick uh, chooses to bait these guys. How he's going to spring free of that, the Quasi Grotto, and uh, bait these guys at the same time, get past these cards. So he just baits them with a little sound. Just reels them in. Enter Riddick! And this is intentionally a reprise of the same move that he made yeah, yeah. at the start of One Step One Kill, where he successfully took down that guy. He's going to try it again, and he's going to fail against Lord Marshall, which tells you how powerful Lord Marshall is.
1: Because Lord Marshall's is better than that.
0: Yeah, you just can't do that to him.
2: an interesting thing, because she's just recently been purified, so there's this sort of interim phase that, that she's in.
0: We also had you wear contact, or you wanted to wear contact lenses on the days which would just make your eyes a little more distant.
4: Yeah.
3: But if you choose another way, the Necromonger way, you'll die in due time. And this is slightly different
0: from the theatrical version as well, because it's, again, the full mythology is that even if you die here you can rise again in the afterlife in, in the end verse. and that's really not made apparent in the theatrical version and it very much plays into you know how we choose to uh, you know how we handle the characters and who lives and who dies at the end of the movie.
2: This was a piece that uh, David and, and Vin and I all worked on and, and went over and questioned the just... there's a great distance suddenly between Kira and Riddick. She's removed in, and in another space, which is um, almost was for me almost like playing a different character.
0: I guess the choice we made was you know do we tip our hand at all that she is still somewhat aligned with him, you know somehow internally aligned with him, do you tip your hand at all to that or do you just play it straight up and I think we just with the exception of just maybe how you moved your eyes there, there was no concession to it no concession to that there may be any vestige. Of cure yeah. still there. Mm. So we I think we played it pretty straight up.
3: Been a long time since I've seen my own blood.
0: These astral gags, as we call them, they were done for us by Double Negative in London, and horrendously complicated because they involved motion control. And anytime the motion control machine came out, then uh, you knew your productivity was gonna like go to shit. On a normal day, you get 20, 25 setups live action stuff, maybe more. When the motion control comes out, three setups a day, four setups a day. Everything has its own individual pass in order to get, you know, one actor, isolate him against the second actor, isolate him, get the green screen pass, get the background pass, get the lighting pass, get the ball pass, get the reference pass, get the cube pass. Horrendously complicated stuff. Learning moments for Riddick in there, where he stops the Lord Marshal, he, he, he catches his, uh, his low blow once, we call that the low bridge, and the second time where Lord Marshal passes over the top of him. And Riddick is surmising that he should be not aiming at the Lord Marshal, but where the Lord Marshal is gonna be. And he, but he's learning that even though he was punished and went to the ground here. This time, so... Side trackers are are beautiful shots, and uh, good things happen when you put things between the subject and the camera, and and pass camera rapidly through it. And that's a killer shot, where he puts Riddick down the second time. The EJ got for us, the second unit guy. Vicious, vicious hit.
3: You're not the one to bring me down.
0: Ah, but Kira might be the one to bring him down. It's a
1: great moment.
0: Nice re entry. It is a great Gonna pay for that.
1: Oh, that's gotta hurt. Yeah. I love how all these characters have a uh, play, ha- play a hand in bringing him down. It's a concerted effort by everybody.
0: Very true. And now is the time. Kill the beast while he's wounded.
1: That was scary. That jump. It's a leap of faith. Another wire work.
0: It's a good one. Help me, Varko. Kill him. I love this realization. This dread realization. Lord Marshall's face. Vaco?
2: Flawless.
0: And now this whole sequence, like, very very slow motion. like It should be seeing like uh, the wings beating of the hummingbird. That's how we shot this whole thing. So we overcranked the camera as much as we could and, and just slowed everything down to make it all very surreal so the audience understood what was going on. That Vodka was swinging for the physical Lord Marshal, while Riddick was swinging for the astral guy. Where the Lord Marshall's going to be.
1: She knows what that means. Yeah. She ain't getting to
0: where she wanted to get. She's not never seen the throne.
2: Again, the score. Scene. It was a really heavy scene to do with Finn, and I have to say it was one of our our best experiences.
0: We came up with the idea of sort of dying in reverse, starting with the eyes closed yeah. and then opening them to die.
2: Yeah. Well that's what he says that makes her open. Yeah.
0: And the tear is phenomenal. There's people who asked me, is that a CG tear you put in there? I said, nope. That's just relax. So this is very much the original ending sort of as we scripted it and as we first put it together in, in the first cut of the movie. The theatrical cut um, does um, tend to go on and on and doesn't finish as cleanly or shockingly as this one does. I remember when uh, our second editor came in to see it for the first time and he saw this, how jarring and shocking the ending was. He says, you know, it just punched me in the gut in a good way. And we never really achieved that again in, in as many times as we manipulated the ending after that in, in our various ways. So we just went back to what we originally Riddick thought worked. You and had Riddick
1: say that.
2: I love that ending.
1: And then we're out. Whoa. That's... And that was the greatest pullback, wasn't it? That was how it was scripted. At that. Script-
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes we get a little... Um, a little purple in our prose in screenplays to, just, to, <laughs> just, to, just to make the point, and I think we described it as one of the greatest pullbacks in cinematic history. I don't know if we quite got there, but uh, it is a, a pretty grand thing, nonetheless. It's a great shot to go out on. It's a great
2: ending, David.
0: Yeah, it's powerful, and you know, I must say, to the studio's credit, they never really wavered on the ending. I mean, we, we toyed around with what shot to go out on, and, you know, whether to... Go out on uh, Judy Dench's narration or not, but I never really wavered on the fact that it is—it's a, a tragedy. It's a really tragic ending, and one of the characters that you should come to know and love over the course of the story. You're going out with her death, possibly to be reclaimed in the future, but clearly dead in this film. And uh, your guy, in this—you uh, know—sitting on the on the throne of this dark empire, the guy who just wanted to be alone at the beginning of the film now in charge of this dark necromonger empire so it's an ironic ending and it's a tragic ending and to the studio's credit they never asked me to change that Mm -hmm. and I'm so pleased with that kudos to them for that